Imagine that you are in the new heavens and the new earth. You are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in the presence of God the Father who holds you and wipes every tear from your eyes. There are innumerable angels around you saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You have new redeems, redeemed, perfected bodies. No more pain or suffering. You can run and not grow weary. You can walk and not faint. There is no sin. There is no temptation even. Rather, all the people around you are perfected, are Christ-like, are all shine with his righteousness. Now a question. There you are, new heavens and new earth. All this is going on around you. Will there be work? We know that work is often tedious, and there will be nothing tedious in the new heavens and the new earth. We know that work is often frustrating, and there will be nothing frustrating in the new heavens and the new earth. But will there be work? Consider, was there work in the Garden of Eden prior to man's fall and man's rebellion? The answer is yes. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Indeed, you know, the communists like to talk about a worker's paradise. Well, the only true worker's paradise was in the Garden of Eden. It was a worker's paradise because man in the garden does not work because he's hungry. He can eat the fruit off of all the trees that grow abundantly in the garden. He does not work to establish his identity. God has given him an identity. He's secure in that identity. He does not work in order to enhance his security. He's perfectly secure before he does any work. He does not try to make up for a lack of joy from the rest of his life by finding joy in work. He has great joy in all of his life. Why does he work? He works at God's command for his own good, and for God's glory. Doing what? What does Adam do for work in the garden? Well, consider it this way. In Genesis 1, the Lord God takes what is formless and void and orders it and fills it. That's God's work. And God then tells the man to take what he has ordered and filled and protect it, sustain it. And using his God-given abilities, his God-given creativity to fill it and to order it yet further. Thus, man's work in the garden is one part of being made in the image of God. It's a display of the creativity, the ability that God has, that he's given to man. 
It's a fulfilling of man's purpose, a glorification of God. Won't there be similar work, work similar to what Adam had in the garden for us in the new heavens and new earth? When mankind and all creation is made new, work will once again be fulfilling and God glorifying. So today, in light of Jesus' promised return, we are to work with that attitude. As we read in our call to worship from Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, in Thessalonica, Paul encountered people with a very different conception of work. They weren't working, perhaps because, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, they think that the day of the Lord has already come, and thus what happens here in this life is not yet, not still of any importance. But whether or not that was their reason, the sin of avoiding work was to some degree prevalent in Thessalonica, as it has been in every society since the fall of mankind. Furthermore, as in Paul's day, today, this sin of reluctance to work frequently combines with being undisciplined in our personal life and being unruly or disobedient in church life. So let's turn to these closing verses in the book of 2 Thessalonians and learn how to help those who are unruly, idle, and disruptive, and perhaps how to help ourselves. So our outline today, very simple, only two parts. First, the problem, and then the solution. The problem. Recall that Paul has just asked for prayer that he might be delivered from, verse 2, wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. We pointed out last week that the word translated wicked is more literally out of place. Prayer that he be delivered from out of place and evil men. And since he then says, not all have faith, that indicates that these folks are probably in the church because you wouldn't expect people outside the church to have faith. So these are people who are out of place in the church, out of place because they don't really have faith in Jesus. They may appear to be part of the body, but they are not genuine, as Jesus indicates in the passage we read from the Sermon on the Mount. Then in verse 4, Paul says, as we considered last week, we have confidence in the Lord about you, Thessalonians, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. But then in verse 6, the apostle says, some in Thessalonica are not doing the things he commands. So the majority of the church is gladly following Paul's commands, but there are some who are not. Let's read verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away 
from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So there are some who are living, who are walking, contrary to what Paul has taught. Now, in his first letter, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul had said, admonish the idol. Here, he says you keep away from those who are walking in idleness, as the English translation indicates. Those come from the same Greek root. When we considered 1 Thessalonians 5.14 some time ago, we noted that the most common meaning of that word translated idle is unruly. One of the Greek lexicons defines it this way, pertaining to being out of step and going one's own way. Thus, not submitting to the word, not submitting to the spirit, not respecting the elders in the context of 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Not listening to others in the congregation who are trying to speak truth into their lives. Again, that's the, that's the context of 1 Thessalonians 5. Not listening to the Apostle Paul or following his example. That's more the context of 2 Thessalonians 3. Unruly, undisciplined, unsubmissive. So being idle refusing to work to support themselves or their families is one manifestation of a more general problem of this unruliness, of this lack of submission. One example of how they do not have true faith, one example of how they are disobeying Paul's commands. Evidently, they are taking advantage of the church's benevolence ministry. They get food for themselves as Paul implies in verse 10, he says, if anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. That is, don't provide food to him if he's able to work, but he's choosing not to, if he's being unruly, disobedient in this way. Paul is saying, by feeding such people, you are only enabling their sin. Well, they disobey my command to work, says the apostle, Hunger may drive them to do what my command cannot. In the second half of verse 11, he gives us a further description of their sin. He says they are not busy at work, but busy bodies. Perhaps the idea is they're not doing their own work, but they're telling other people how to do their work. Have you ever encountered such people? even such people in the church. They can be critical of the music, critical of Sunday school, critical of the elders, critical of the preaching, but they don't volunteer to do anything. Now, we all want to improve. And we've tried to cultivate an atmosphere in this church where we are asking, requesting input, requesting helpful criticism on how we can do better. So on our Tuesday morning time together on Zoom, we're always, each week, asking the question, how could the service have been better? How could the sermon have been better? 
And sometimes new folks who haven't yet even had an opportunity to serve can give fresh insights in how we can do better because they're not used to the way we do things here. We want to hear those. But if you find yourself serving very little and critiquing a lot, that's a problem. Pray. Consider volunteering, volunteering to serve in an area that you think needs improvement because God may have placed that on your heart because it does need improvement and you're specially gifted to help in that way. Don't fall into the temptation of being a busybody, as Paul says. So, how might we summarize the problem in Thessalonica? What is the problem? They're these folks who are unruly, they are out of step, they are disobedient. They evidently think of work solely in negative terms, and thus they avoid doing it, not realizing that work is a key way we glorify God now and for all eternity. They are in danger, for this unruliness could well be an indicator of a lack of genuine faith. Like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, they are hearing the words of Jesus and not doing them. They may well be on that wide and easy road that leads to destruction. And so, they might hear from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. Furthermore, they are not only endangering themselves, but they harm the church, causing disunity or a root of bitterness, as the author to Hebrews calls it, a spirit of rebellion within the body. That's the problem. So what's the solution? Second heading. In verse 12... Paul gives commands to the unruly directly. He speaks to those people who are being disobedient and idle. And then, in other parts of the passage, Paul gives commands to the rest of the church. So let's look at that in that order. First, Paul's commands to the unruly in verse 12, and then... From throughout the passage, Paul's commands to the rest of the church. Verse 12. Now such persons, the unruly, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I got to quibble with this translation here. The word translated encourage in the ESV is a wonderful word, parakaleo. It has a broad range of meanings. It can mean encourage. It can mean comfort. It can mean stand alongside. It can mean exhort. And thus, you can parakaleo someone by putting your arm around their shoulder or standing beside them, helping them along. And you can parakaleo someone by giving them a kick in the pants. Okay? The word has that broad a connotation. In this case, it sure seems like, when you read all the context, it's more the latter than the former, right? It's more the kick in the pants than the arm around the shoulder. Paul is frustrated with these people. 
They are not doing what he has told them repeatedly. He's passed the stage of the arm around the shoulder and encouraging them. He is exhorting them. So it's a command here. He says this is in the Lord Jesus Christ command them. I I command you. In the Lord Jesus Christ, or by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the very words of the Lord Jesus, I command you and exhort you. Well, what are they commanded to do? Second part of the verse. To do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, Paul had said something similar to the entire church in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 to 12. He said, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, thus not to be a busybody, right? And to work with your hands as we instructed you. So you see, Paul had instructed them to do this in person. He evidently had seen something that bothered him, something that seemed not right. He wrote them about it in his first letter. And now he's writing a second letter, and it's still going on in the church. At this point, therefore, I think Paul's tone is harsh, should be harsh. Harsher than what's implied by the ESV. Perhaps even as harsh as such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to shut up and get to work. Rather than do your work quietly. I think shut up may get the idea across. Or maybe we could put that more politely. Quit being busybodies and go provide for yourself and your family. That's Paul's command to the unruly. Behind the command is the truth we saw in the introduction. Work is good. Work is to the glory of God. Jesus' work was to do the will of the Father who sent him. Jesus gives us work. He will continue to give us work for all eternity. Yes, there are frustrations at work in this fallen world. But you are working, as we saw in Colossians, for the Lord Jesus. As you do so, you are helping yourself, your family, your church, the poor, as well as helping others who are unable to work. You are cheerfully giving of the proceeds of work to advance the cause of Jesus. That's the attitude they are to have. An attitude reflected in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. I have seen personally what is the only beneficial and appropriate course of action for people to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all their hard work on earth. So, Paul tells the unruly, shut up and get to work. Quit being busybodies. Go provide for yourself and your family. Well, what happens if the unruly do not repent? How should others in the church treat them? What should they do? Well, Paul gives six commands to the rest of the church scattered throughout this passage. First of all, verse 14, take note of that person. Don't close your eyes to what is going on. Don't ignore it. 
They are a danger to themselves. They are a danger to their families. They are a danger to the church. So take note of them. That's the first command. Second, don't enable their continuing this sin by providing for their needs, as we saw from verse 10. If they're not willing to work, they must not eat. Willing is a very key word here. If they are not willing to work. He doesn't say if they are not working, they must not eat. If they are not willing to work, they must not work. If they are unable to work, or if no work is to be found, that's a different situation. No shame at all in seeking help when that's the case. And so, in this church, our benevolence team tries to assess that when deciding whether or not to answer positively requests for assistance. For our attempts to help people who need some sort of physical assistance, our attempts can hurt the recipient as well as ourselves if we give in the wrong circumstances. So we need to have wisdom and discernment when we're trying to help. They must be willing to work. If they're unwilling to work, that's where the problem lies. Third, take note of the person. Don't enable their continuing to sin by providing for them. Third, don't mix with them. This is a little subtle. Verse 6, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Verse 14, have nothing to do with them. The church is to guard against such people. Keep away from, can have that sense of guard, watch out for. Make sure that their attitude does not infect the entire church. And the church must recognize that these unruly might be amongst those who are without faith, those he mentioned in verse 2. So the rest of the church must not do anything to encourage their possible self-deception. Don't treat them, don't assume that they are believers just because they are regularly part of your worship services. If they are walking in this unruly disobedience that Paul describes... You don't want, if they are among those that Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you don't want to give them a false assurance and thus keep them from repentance. But point three is qualified by point four. The fourth point, verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Thus, Paul is not calling here for shunning these folks. He's not saying have absolutely nothing to do with them, but to warn them, admonish them. It's the same verb translated admonish in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the idol. Warn them that the path they are on is a path to destruction. Not a life-giving path. Fifth, 
set an example for them. Paul went to great lengths to set an example for them, evidently noticing very early in his first days in Thessalonica that there was this problem there. Verses 7 to 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul actually limited the number of hours he was engaged in ministry in order that he might set an example for the Thessalonians. He chose to work with his hands, make money, and provide for the needs of himself and his team rather than to spend that time in ministry and receive gifts from the Thessalonians. He had a right to receive support, and many times in Paul's ministry, he did live on support. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth, where he goes to Corinth. He doesn't have support. He's working with Priscilla and Aquila. And then money comes in from Philippi, amongst other places, and he's able to devote himself full-time to ministry because of that support. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul thanks the Philippians for that gift that they sent him. But in Thessalonica, Paul chose to work a substantial amount of time. Evidently, knowing of the prevalence there of this form of disobedience, this form of unruliness. So Paul himself set an example for these folks, and he commands others in the church also to set such an example. Verse 13, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, in context, doing good surely includes their diligent hard work. That's one way that they do good. As they provide for their families, as they glorify God in their work, and as they do other work, the elder-like tasks that we identified in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, including admonishing the idol. That also is good work that they do. And then also the good work of the benevolence ministry that he has been talking about. So don't grow weary in doing all of this. Don't grow weary in providing for the genuinely poor because some people have abused the gifts that they have received and chosen not to work. Don't grow weary in day after day after day working diligently as to the Lord in whatever work God has called you. So the unruly need admonishment, warning, but they also need good examples. Paul writes elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ, we should be able to 
say the same. Sixth, so we've seen take note of the person, don't enable their continuing in this sin by providing for them, don't mix with them, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother, set an example. Finally, pray. Pray for them, pray for the church. Paul prays in both verses 16 and 18. Verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you. Verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Jesus is the Lord of peace, the Prince of Peace. He's the Lord, thus, of healthy, life-giving relationships. The unruly are undermining those life-giving relationships. And so pray that the Prince of Peace will grant healthy, life-giving relationships to this church. Pray that your peace would not be undermined by the unruly. Pray that by his grace, the rest of the church would obey Paul's commands and so love the unruly enough to admonish them, to set good examples for them. Pray that God would grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and to escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will, as Paul prays in 2 Timothy. So, Paul commands the unruly, shut up and get to work, stop being a busybody, and go support your family. And he commands the rest of the church to note such people, not to enable their sin, not to act as if they are in good standing, to warn them as brothers, to set examples for them of diligent, joyful, good work, and to pray for the church. We are to do the same. So work is a gift. I do believe we will have an eternity of fulfilling, joy-producing God-glorifying work. As we see more and more of who Jesus is, and as we display more and more of his creativity and his abilities in our lives. Work today can foreshadow that good, eternal work. The unruly in Thessalonica did not recognize that truth. They perhaps used a misunderstanding of the day of the Lord to justify their own laziness. I don't see a lot of that link in our culture today, a link between a misunderstanding of Jesus' coming back and laziness. That's happened fairly often in church history. I don't really see that happening today, particularly not in our culture. But I do see a lot of negativity towards work. There's always going to be frustrations as we work in this fallen world. There's always going to be tedium in the work that God gives us because of the fall. 
But the way you respond to those frustrations, the way you respond to that tedium, is what is key. Paul says you are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your real boss. He is the one that your labor is for. So don't grumble. Don't complain. Work hard. Work diligently. If you can find work, which is less frustrating and less tedious, then by all means, change jobs, change companies. Do that instead. But no, you can glorify God in any sort of honest labor. Work should not be the source of our, of our identity. Being in Jesus Christ should be the source of our identity. Work should not be the basis of our security. Again, being in Jesus should be the basis of our security. Work should not be the source of our greatest joy. Jesus should be. And we should not think we are earning favor or earning status or even earning our money through our work. Jesus grants us favor. Jesus grants us status. Jesus gives us the ability to work. And so it is all from him by grace through the gospel. But if we have come to Jesus by grace through faith in his sacrifice, then we can serve him well through diligent work now and for eternity. So don't grow weary in doing good. Thank God for the privilege of working. Encourage one another in such work both in our professions and in the family and also in the church. Work is not something that's kind of on the periphery of the Christian life. Work is at the center of who we are, of why we are here, of how we fulfill our purpose. And so may we follow Jesus by faith in his sacrifice and therefore, may we live to his glory in our work and indeed in all of our lives. Let's pray together.